Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I'm going to read throughout this chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter today. And the bulk of it is a, is a retelling of what happened in chapter 10. So, but I, I'm going to read uh, a few parts of the first 18 verses and then all of 19 down through 30. It says, And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and didst eat and didst eat with them. Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, and I saw a vision. And he goes on to the vision from chapter 10, and we'll review that, how, how the meats had descended in the sheet and mixture of clean and unclean. And he goes over that process what says and how the Lord told him in, in verse 7, he said, Peter, uh, um, slay and eat. And verse 8 says, But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me from, uh, again from heaven, What God had cleansed, that call not thou common. And he talks about it was done the three times. And, and the men coming to his house, and the Spirit bade me, verse 12, with them, nothing doubting uh, to go with them. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me. Let them know I got... There's a total of six others besides myself, seven witnesses for what's going to take place, entered into this man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house. He goes over the vision that Cornelius had and had sent for Simon. And then, of course, how he preached and how they, by the way, verse 14, you say they needed salvation. Who shall tell thee these words whereby thou and thy house shall be saved? Cornelius still needed to be saved. Do not confuse the verse where it talks about Peter saying he recognized how they were accepted of God uh, based on his fear of God and, and, and his good works. What he did was respond to the light that was given, but salvation still needed to take place, which is why Peter was sent. Um, and, he, and he talks of how the Holy Ghost fell upon them. Verse 16, he says, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Ghost, for as much then as God gave them the light gift, as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, verse 19. Now, when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about, uh, about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. But now with what is taking place, that's going to change. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was, upon, was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. The tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, 
when he came and seen the grace of God and was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and full uh, and, uh, and faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. When he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in those days came prophets from, from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then, when the, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt at Judea. This is the church at Antioch at work. Which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, please fill me with your spirit. Control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored. Help me to stay true to your word, Lord. Please challenge us and change us. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this morning that would take place. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it can be important who you model yourself after. Who it is you allow to have an influence on your life. I certainly, I remember raising children, raised five kids, still have Levi in the house. I certainly didn't want, and I don't want, the wrong influence on my children or even my own life for that matter. Whenever I saw that taking place, usually I'd kick myself and get mad at myself for that happening and do what I could to change it. Because we're influenced by others. We are. And we want the right influence in our life for our family, for our church. When it comes to that, we certainly want to be, have the Bible and the Lord to have the greatest influence that it possibly can. When it comes to what influences us in life, it's not always about what is pragmatic, but it's always about what does the Lord say about this. Today, we're going to be looking at several things that influence this church at Antioch. Basically, what, what we're going to see what this chapter gives us, and I think it's fascinating, is a framework for God's hand on a church is a framework to have God's blessing and how God expects a church to grow. So, the context of this, of course, is Cornelius and his conversion. Chapter 10 was a major chapter in the book of Acts because you have, for the first time, the, the apostles, Christians, who at this point were all converted Jews and, and Samaritans by this time, but now going to a Gentile. We saw all the Lord had to do to allow this to take place. Of course, Cornelius was this Roman centurion who had turned from the pagan gods. He had realized there was only one true God. And that, just that fact of what he realized through creation itself began to change his life. And God noticed. He was, he was already praying to God. And, and God in his prayers sent an angel and said, Listen, you need to send for a man named Peter. You send for him. He'll come and tell you what you need to know. So he does that. Meanwhile, Peter has that vision in Acts chapter 10. God is having to break down what, what he's believed all of his life from a religious perspective, how the Gentiles were unclean. You didn't fellowship with them. You had nothing to do with them. They had so many of those rules in place that we looked at that was establishing this separation from Jew from the rest of the world. 
And so here the Lord comes with that vision using meats as the example. And yes, that was changing the dietary uh, prohibition that had been in place going all the way back to the Old Testament. We saw that the reason for that God had given it to begin with was to allow a separation between his people and Gentiles. But that's going away because now in Christ we're going to be made one. And that understanding is just beginning to develop in the hearts of the new converts. There's so much that the Lord had to bring them through to this point. And so he uses this special vision with Peter. And Peter says, when he hears the voice say, rise, kill and eat. He says, I won't do it. I've never ate anything unclean. And And then the Lord told him, listen, what I have clean, call not thou common. And then those men were at the house immediately, and the Lord said, you go with them. And he realized, wait, this is about the Gentiles. Peter travels uh, to Joppa to talk with Cornelius. He's amazed when he gets there what the Lord had already did for him. He preaches the gospel unto him, and of course him and his household put their faith in Christ. An incredible event takes place. That was a huge day. Peter did something that no Jew would do. He went into the house of a Gentile. He fellowshiped with them. He broke bread with them. And news traveled fast back to Jerusalem of what had taken place. You had certain believers called Judaizers. I'll talk more about them in a few minutes. They weren't happy. This chapter has Peter instructing the church at Jerusalem as to what happened. And how this is all of the Lord, the Gentiles coming to Christ. And then we see immediately the very first Gentile church established. So we have here what we need in our own church. To see our church grow or to have the Lord's hand upon it is what we need. We need to be in a place where our actions don't hinder that from taking place. Where we trust in the Lord for what He wants to do. Where we don't get in the way or allow something else in our life to cause us to lose sight of God. And remembering life is all about God. You can think of these Gentiles that are getting ready to get converted in the city of Antioch. And I think when you learn more about the city, it's going to allow you to come to an understanding of what an amazing day this is. So many things can hinder us and cause us to lose sight of God and lose focus on Him and Him alone. Trials, temptations, complacency. So we want to dive into this passage and be stirred as a church to remember how great it is to be saved. To understand what life is all about. To cleave unto the Lord as uh, as we're going to see the instruction of Barnabas. So we're going to see the framework here for a successful church before God. If you want to write these down quickly, I have several C's here we're going to look at this morning. How we need to contend, to contact from God, to cleave, to communicate, and to contribute. So let's dive into this. Number one, we need to contend. I'm not going to reread the first 18 verses. Um, We just went through them here at the beginning, and for time's sake, I'm not going to do that. But we have, as soon as... Remember, Cornelius had asked Peter to stay in fellowship with us, and he did. During that time frame, news got back to the church at Jerusalem. Peter is in the... Could, could you just, isn't it amazing how, in, in, in people's minds, if something bad happens, they can't wait to tell it. There was a group who could not wait to get back, 
and, and say, Peter is in the house of a Gentile right now. So the news traveled very fast back to Jerusalem about what had taken place. Those of the circumcision, and those are basically, I mean, I mean up to this point, remember, the entire church is Jewish converts to Christ. With, of course, we have the Samaritans had come in now. But for the bulk of it, especially at the church at Jerusalem, it is Jewish converts. And there was an element of Judaizers there, and their big thing was this, and they wouldn't let it go. It's going to cause more problems later on even. It's going to have to be dealt with. But one of their basic fundamental beliefs was, and they, they held to it tightly, that in order, if a Gentile was to be saved, he first had to convert to Judaism. Then he would be able to come to Christ. That was the process. Judaizers held to that very tightly. So this is what Peter is contending with. So the news traveled. They believe Peter has sinned. They're upset against him. Now Peter returns. He realizes, oh, there's an element of the church that is mad. They think I've sinned against God. See, they already have their own preconceived notions about what had happened without hearing Peter out. They never took time first to figure out, okay, well, what happened? They contend with him the moment he arrives. They're just convinced he's sinned. It's always sad when that happens. Before Peter could even explain what God did, they've already made up their minds. Listen, it's important you take time to listen to the other person before you condemn. Find out why an action has taken place. Peter handles the situation very well. He does. We can learn a lot on how to handle disagreements from how Peter handled the Judaizers that were in the church at Jerusalem. In his response to them, one, we see Peter was humble. Peter could have put down his authority. He could have. He's the lead apostle. That's who he is. But you don't see him using his authority in this position. You know what? I mean, he didn't see this as, as an attack on his person. He wasn't worried about his name. He was worried about faith and God, uh, um, not his position as the apostle. He used an element of humility when he, was, when he had to contend for what had taken place. He showed genuine humility. With what takes place, he also showed much grace. You know, I think he learned a lot from the event that took place. Remember when Peter, when, when he was with the Lord on the earth and was asked if, if the Lord's going to pay his taxes. And Peter responded for him. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. And the Lord took him aside and let him know, I don't have to pay these taxes. I'm God. <laughs> this, this is all about me. And what Christ did, though, was he made a point, though. He said, but I am going to do this. And that's when they went out with the fish and, you know, throw your hook and you're going to find a fish. It'll be enough to pay our taxes. But the Lord could have put his authority down and let them know, I don't have to. He would have been right. But there was something more important at stake than just being right. So often, our need to be right drives us. Instead of a greater principle. Instead of putting people in faith above the need to be right. Peter learned, I think, greatly from that day. 
and it's helping him in this situation. He showed much grace. So Peter, with a humble heart and with grace, he retells what had happened and he uses a great defense. Threefold defense he used that he gave them. He let them know, I had a vision from God. That's what I have here. Listen, this is what God did. This is why I went there. He also used in, in let me get back here, was it in verse number 17? The witness of what God's Spirit did, for as much then as God gave them the light gift as He did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? He's referring back to, of course, you've got the day of Pentecost that had taken place. He said, listen, fellas, what happened to us on the day of Pentecost? I was in that room and it happened to them. Again, this is only the second time that you see biblical tongues taking place in Scripture. It won't happen again for many years later, Acts chapter 19. And as the Bible teaches us clearly... It wasn't some gibberish language. It was the ability to speak another language instantly. And it was always given for one purpose in the Bible, in the New Testament. It tells us that directly. A sign unto the Jews that truth has come. It's exactly what those seven men, counting Peter, would need when Cornelius and his household put his faith in Christ. And they're like, it's true. And he tells them, we have the witness of the Spirit. Not just the seven of us that witnessed what happened. And then he refers to, as part of his argument, the Word of God. Look what he did in verse 16. Then remembered I the Word of the Lord. How he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. So he has the witnesses in place, him and the six others. He uses the Word of God, he uses the Spirit of God to make his argument. Peter tells of their conversion. And Peter concludes with a strong argument. He says, knowing this, who am I to withstand against God? He used great wisdom as he contended for the faith. He let them know this is all of God. He's letting them know, if you're going to fight this, you are contending not with me, but you are contending with what God is doing. Verse 18 says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, I, I personally believe, and, and this is just mine, based on what's going to happen when we get to Acts chapter 15, I think two groups were still formed here in the church at Jerusalem. I believe you had the group that held their peace, the Judaizers. They could say nothing. The argument was put together, it was of God, and those who glorified God for it had taken place. Because there's still others that are not happy about how this is taking place right now. They're not letting go of the different traditions. They're not letting God work. <clears throat> but nonetheless, we have this great verse here in verse number 18. This is a key verse in the book of Acts. This is still now the church at Jerusalem saying, it's true. The Gentiles can, in fact, be saved. This is the launching point, which is what you see taking place in the very next verse, the establishing now of the very first Gentile church. They agree, it's true, this is of God, we can't argue with this, we'd be continuing against God, salvation, repentance unto life has come to the Gentiles. They now know every creature. Now, what's interesting, I want you to think about this. I'm going to give this quickly to be a help, because I, I do have a lot to cover today. We won't, we won't be that long at all, don't, don't, but I, I, do, I, I, I think this is important. This has been more than ten years since Pentecost we're at now in the book of Acts. More than ten years has passed. 
Why did it take so long? Why ten years? Why is it that now God gave the vision with all that's taking place? I, I think there's three reasons and two of them are primary. Number one, we, we, we've, I've already dealt with. That is the prejudice had to come down. What they have believed was true before God all their life. The Lord had to work to change that. And, he, and he's been doing it, not just in Acts chapter 10. You can see that change taking place as we, come, as we have come through the book of Acts. The Samaritans. But I think there's two other reasons why the ten years, why the Lord had waited ten years. Think about this. They really needed a good foundation doctrinally in order to be established. The book of Acts is a, is a transition book. It's a history book of the New Testament. It's, it, it's a transition between, as, as churches are for the first time in world history being established, of knowing what to do and how to do it. They don't have a New Testament. The Lord had to do a lot here to, to get a, 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 a doctrinal basis in place. Or if churches just start exploding everywhere, they're going to be a mess. You can just imagine them mixing the paganism that's going to come in. So there had to be understanding beginning to develop within these churches of, of what this is all about. And along with that, the third reason, God would have to prepare men. Guess who also has been converted about ten years now? A man named Saul. A man with incredible wisdom. A man who the Lord has been dealing with himself directly. So the Lord also had to prepare men for this to take place. But now it's time. And boy, does it happen. It takes place. That brings us to second, the hand of God, contact from God. Look at verses 19 through 23. It says, Now when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as it's Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, that's the Gentiles, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he had come, had seen the grace of God, was, uh, was glad, and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. So let's look here, especially these first couple of verses of this, the contact, and then thirdly, the cleaving there. But they needed contact from God for this to work. They needed the hand of the Lord, as it says here. Now, what's interesting is, if you want to mark a verse right next to this, when you get to verse 19, you can mark, mark this picks up from Acts, going all the way back to Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, where verse 4 leaves off. Basically, starting verse 5, down through Acts chapter 11, those first 18 verses, is a giant parenthesis. It picks back up now. All right? It picks back up. As God was laying the foundation for what's getting ready to take place, it goes back to the persecution that started back with Stephen, and so now it comes right back to that now, that, now that all that has been established in these last two chapters for the Gentiles to come to know Christ. Luke goes back to the persecution, and he begins to deal with a key city named Antioch, and what the Lord did there was amazing. 
This will become a great work, a great church, a church that the hand of the Lord was on. So because of the persecution, as we know, it caused the scattering. It caused believers to be scattered abroad uh, 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 because of the man who was leading them, of course, was Saul. But the persecution was hitting, so believers are having to scatter. It refers back now to this, and he deals with, with a couple of men who had been traveling. It deals with them coming into the area of Phoenicia. That was on the coastal plain there in Palestine. You had a couple of major city port cities that were that were right there, Tyre and Sidon. Easy from there to get on a boat, had to like the island of Cyprus, which some did. Or if you travel up north right from there, you're going to go right to Antioch. Antioch's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And so some did that. Antioch would prove to be a very needed and strategic location for the gospel. It was the capital of Syria at the time. And don't confuse this with Antioch of Pisidia. There's actually 16 Antiochs in existence at this time. This is the main one. At this, at this time of this writing, when this was taking place in the first century, Antioch is the third largest city in the world. Rome is the largest, Alexandria was next, and then Antioch. It had a population of around a half million at the time. It was one of the greatest cities of its day. It had incredible structures and buildings throughout. It was referred to as Antioch, the Golden Queen of the East. The main street was incredible. They said it was, it was four miles long, paved with marble, lined, lined on both sides by marble pillars heading down. It was the only city in the ancient world at the time that had, its, at night, that big street was lighted. It was a busy port, but there was a center of luxury and culture. Uh, it, it, had, it was very cosmopolitan. It had all kinds of, uh, of people from all over the area coming in. It would be an incredible, a very important place. It had large commercial industries. It was a political powerhouse. But it also had other problems. Outside of the city of Corinth, it was considered the most wicked. It was a vile place. They had all the Greek and Roman gods, the Syrian deities. They were all honored. Shrines were everywhere. Um, immorality was common. And there's even in writings that I was studying, there are many of the day who wrote that what had corrupted Rome was Antioch. So it's also a very wicked city. This will be the city, the capital of Syria, the third largest city in the world at the time that is going to establish the very first Gentile church. And it's going to be an incredible church. So we have these men of Cyprus and Cyrene. These are... Converted Hellenistic Jews, they head into Antioch. No doubt they get word about Cornelius, because at first, as it said, they were just preaching to the Jews only. But word travels. And you can just see them and the wicked city of them, of them desiring to preach to the Gentiles. Well, they get word about Cornelius, and they do just that. And guess what happens? A great multitude converts. It's amazing what's taking place. It's because of this. This is why uh, Jerusalem is going to send Barnabas. They get word of what's taking place. No one else is amazing. I want you to think about this. The Bible just says men of Cyprus and Cyrene. 
It doesn't give their name. These men are responsible for the start of one of the greatest churches in world history, and we don't even have their name. It's never about your name. It's always about God. The moment you try to make it about your name, you've lost sight of what it's all about. Again, so they start preaching in verse 20, and the Gentiles are converted. Again, the Grecians, there is Gentiles. These are Hellenistic Jews themselves. It's, it's, it's dealing with them preaching right to Gentiles. That's why the comparison, that's why when the church at Jerusalem hears about it, even though they have made, they, they have made the, the confession, all right, the gospel is open to the Gentiles, and then probably within, I don't know, weeks, months, word gets to them. Um, there's a great multitude of Gentiles in Antioch that have come to know Christ. They hear this, and they say, we better see what's going on. And they send Barnabas. They send Barnabas. <clears throat> and look at verse 21 before I get a little bit more into Barnabas. Look at verse 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Listen, this is such a key. To have the hand of God upon your life, upon this church. This is what causes things to happen as God would have it. It's not us trying to manufacture it. That's not how we go about it. What we need is the hand of the Lord upon our life and upon our ministries. Seeking that. It's in a place where we're trusting God, not in man's methods. Not what seems pragmatic. There's different things we can do to pack it out right now. But we don't make decisions based on what's pragmatic. We make decisions based on what's right before God. Of simply desiring to have God pleased with what's taking place and then trusting Him to do it. We just got to be in that place where we are seeking God, where we don't hinder what God wants to do. And so Jerusalem hears, and then 22 through 24, we have the cleaving unto the Lord. This is when Barnabas shows up. And for our church to be strong, not only are we going to have to contend for the faith, disagreements are going to come up. Not only do we have to have that key of the hand of the Lord upon us, God's contact upon us, but we also need to cleave unto Him. Church sends Barnabas, and think about this. Just, just, Barnabas is perfect for this. Guess where he's from? Cyprus. They sent, they sent him in. He probably knows the men who are starting this church. It's possible. It's, it's, not, it's not a jump to make the assumption that perhaps Barnabas is the one who led them to the Lord. So they hear about it, that these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, they started preaching to Gentiles, and Gentiles are coming to know Christ. This is the first time the church of Jerusalem is hearing it like this on the mass scale. That, that people are responding to the truth that they have admitted. That the gospel goes to all men. And so they say, listen, let's see what's going on. Send Barnabas. Barnabas is perfect. He's always been the encourager. And when he gets there, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to encourage them. It tells us here in the verses we read that he is full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith. Deals with his character and his commitment. Barnabas is dead serious. 
about his faith and about serving God. We see that throughout the scriptures of his life. A man that is surrendered to the Lord, a man that is humble, and he heads to Antioch. He arrives, as, as we just read a few moments ago, he arrives and sees the amazing growth that is taking place with Gentiles. Barnabas himself, this is the first time with his own eyes, he has seen this amount of Gentiles who have come to know Christ. Barnabas decides, he, he, for, for right now, he's not going anywhere. He himself begins to preach and teach. He gives great advice immediately to them. Look at what he says here. Let's read that verse again. Verse 23, when Barnabas had arrived, who, when he had come, had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them, and all they... Here, here was what he was driving at with these new converts. With purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. What he's stressing now, you're coming out of paganism, you're coming out of this wicked culture. Now what you do, you have to purpose in your heart to do this, to cling unto God, to make Him your life. But again, we have a lot of things doctrinally that are now in place for this to happen. And he's letting them know, listen, you have to make your life all about God now. It's about Him. You cling unto the Lord. And he says, in order to do that, you have to purpose. There's a measure of discipline if we're going to do that. So Barnabas begins to encourage, he begins to preach. He stresses their need to cling unto the Lord. Don't play a game with it, he's telling them. This is what it's all about. He knows these are all brand new believers. So you can ask yourself this morning, as a believer, since this message that he gave us to believers, what is it, if the Lord was to come to you today and say, or even ask you directly, when he already knows, what is it that you are cleaving to in life? What is it that has you? Listen, you know there's some things that can have you that are right of themselves, but it's still sin before God because you're putting it before God? Let me give you some things to be, to be careful of. And I say this, and I have nobody in mind here. I don't think there's anybody here like this right now. I just want to say it because I've seen it trip up Christians, if you will. You, you, can get, you can cleave to things like obsessed with prophecy, that that becomes your life. It's not about prophecy. It's about God. It's about Him. You can, you can allow... So, the devil will do uh, all he can to get something else in that door to get you to cleave to. But it's about Him. So Barnabas, that's his first foundational teaching. You make life about God. That's what you need to do. You forget the life you had before. It's gone. That's what you need to do. Now, look what it says here, by the way. We need to cover this. For he was a good man, verse 24, and full of Holy Ghost and of faith. Now get this. And much people was added unto the Lord. So as a result of Barnabas also preaching, much people. The word changes here. It's very interesting and great. You know what it means? Great multitudes. A lot. A lot. When you look it up, it means a giant multitude, a massive multitude. 
there were many, many converting to Christ. This isn't a small work. And as we get into this next point here, know what they're going to have the ability to do that so far has been very difficult to take place? They're going to be able to assemble in one location. They had property somewhere in Antioch. They had their own building. So Barnabas has this great multitude, massive multitude come to know Christ. You know what he realizes? I need help. I need help. You know who the Lord puts on his mind? Saul. God's been preparing this man for ten years for this day. So let's read the next section. Communication in the church or biblical teaching. Then, verse 25, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that as a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So, let's get into this. If a church is, this is a framework for a successful church before God. Being willing to contend. Having that contact of God, the hand of God. Having the people realize, clinging unto the Lord, that life is about Him. And then for a church to be successful, now they got the people there. Listen, there's a responsibility of biblical teaching, communicating the Word of God. So Barnabas goes to find Saul. We know Saul is back somewhere near Tarsus, and we know, we know he's been preaching too. And, and by the way, the word, the word that is used there I do find interesting. It wasn't easy necessarily for uh, um, Barnabas to find him. He had to work to find him. For to seek. Um, the word is implying he had to work to find him. But of course the Lord directed he found him. He lets him know what's going on at Antioch. He says, listen, we need to get back to Antioch. I need you there. Saul, of course, agrees. He's coming with him. And Saul, again, it's been, it's been almost a full ten years since he was converted. So think about this. They head back. Basically, the first pastors of the church at Antioch are Barnabas and Saul. Would you not like that? Well, don't answer that. I don't want to hear the answer to that. But that would be incredible. Think, think here. Here's Saul. Think of this man's ready. I, I'm convinced he is ready to explode with the understanding he has been given by God of what was taking place in the Old Testament, what happened with Christ. He's ready to go. And they're able to assemble. Boom, together. That's what it means. They're together. This massive multitude. And Barnabas and Saul begin teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Incredible. So, really, I, I, you know, isn't, when, you, when you know they arrive, there's ante- anticipation is about, okay, what are they going to do? Just think about Barnabas and Saul talking as they're going back to Antioch. Barnabas or, is no doubt excited. Gentiles can be saved. I mean, there's, and he's probably telling us, we have thousands, thousands. In Antioch, third largest city in the world. Paul, think where it's located. Think of the routes coming through. Think of what we could do from this location. It would be the location that world's missions would be launched. 
And so, what programs would they start to make this thing effective? I wonder what they would do. I bet you they planned concerts. Listen, we're going to need to use the pagan music. They're used to that. We need to be bridge builders. Listen, I can just hear Saul saying to Barnabas, listen, all right, all right, I know Antioch's really wicked. So how far can we go so that we're still like them? Because we know if we're going to reach them, we have to be like them. That conversation never took place. I could just see if one of them thought, actually the other one says, so let, let me get this straight. So in order for us to love them, we have to be like them. I don't, uh, so it's, it's not going to be the teaching or the preaching. It, it's going to be us looking like them. So again, they didn't plan, they didn't get back to, and actually, okay, we've got to do Super Bowl party. We've we got to have tremendous community events. None of that. Know what they did? They taught the Word of God. If a church is going to have God's hand upon it, it needs biblical teaching. That's what it needs. That was their approach. That was their program. Paul, think again, Paul, just, just thinking about this this week, Paul has been meditating upon the Old Testament Scripture, what has been taking place. And now here he is before this great multitude. He's going to put it all together. And listen, biblical teaching is the key for any church. Learning the Word of God, learning why we do what we do, seeing it in the Scriptures, learning how to glorify God. Solid biblical teaching is what is needed. If we're going to have God's blessing in God's hand, it starts there. Again, as a result of what is taking place in this major city and their lives being changed, guess what happens? Believers are first called Christians in Antioch. They changed. In other words, it wasn't Paul and Barnabas becoming like them. Their lives were changed so much that they gave them an IAN ending. It was usually given for a political party. And they, but they noticed such a great change that the name of Christ in the third largest city was being heard throughout the place that they started calling them by a party name. Christians. They meant it derogatory, of course. But to them, understand, it'd be a badge of honor. Today, the Christian name itself is just used so flippantly. Wear it as a badge of honor of who we represent. Lastly, the chapter finishes now. They've been assembling a whole year, getting teaching from the Apostle Paul. They're ready to work. Look at how the chapter finishes. You have these prophets coming up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Agabus stands up, lets them know there's a great dearth coming. There's a famine coming. It's going to come in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, the members of this church, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
We see them now contributing, working, ministering. They grew. They were under the teaching. Their lives were changing. People noticed a difference in their life. And now they start ministering. Now they start meeting needs. Now they start getting into ministry and helping others. They're serving. So we have this prophet coming. At this time, they get the prophecy was still in place. The word of God was not complete. The Bible is clear. When, when, the, when the, the canon of scriptures is closed... A lot of those things that God had in place for 4,000 years are no longer needed. And remember, a true prophet of God was never wrong. These men today who claim to have the gift of prophecy, it's nonsense. Here's what we have that they never had. Do you want to know what God said, what He's going to do? Read it. It's right here. But he lets him know of this famine coming. By the way, in world history, it bears this out. We have it in several different historical writings that in the year 45 to 46, there was a great famine that hit when Claudius Caesar was in power. Um, so this, this event that was talked about here is recorded in world history. But the members of this church sent relief to the brethren at the church at Jerusalem. Incredible when you think about it. This is the Gentile church. They're sending relief where? Jerusalem. Could you imagine those in Jerusalem as relief comes from the church at Antioch? The Gentiles. Incredible. It'd be humbling. But God will always put things in your life to humble you. That's why I can't speak straight when I'm up here half the time. When somebody has to go to the ambulance in the hospital. I said that before. That was much funnier last time, I guess. Nobody laughed that time. That's all right. Wow, still nobody laughed. It's... Thank you, Sharon. <laughs> so they send relief to the church at Jerusalem. And by the way, what we do see here established, which will be throughout the New Testament, is the New Testament pattern for giving. Every man did according to his own ability. That's how they gave. You're going to see that established now. Every man did according to his own ability. They did what they could do. Every man gave. Every man gave based on the potential that he had to give. Those who could give a lot, gave a lot. Those who could give a little, gave a little. It wasn't like we see so often. This, like, like the Bible says, God loves the cheerful giver. It's not, I've been in the services before where an offering is completely manipulated. I've, I've been there. Pass the plates. What do we get? Not any, pass them again. Pass them again. Pass them again. Pass them again. That's not the biblical guidelines for giving. So as we conclude this, we do see a framework, a pattern. What is needed for our church to be right, to have God's hand upon it. We've got to be willing to contend for what is right. We need that contact of God, the hand of God to have His blessing on our ministries. Therefore, we have a responsibility to cling unto the Lord, to make Him our life. Then as a church, we have to communicate the Word of God. We've got to teach biblical teaching. And then we get busy. We contribute. We minister. We serve. We meet needs. We take the knowledge that God has given us and we use it to be a help. With heads bowed and eyes closed.